Welcome to the Fair Forest Podcast. Here you can find sermon, Bible study, and devotional audio from Fair Forest Church of God in Spartanburg, South Carolina, a place of hope, healing, and restoration. It is our prayer that this content introduces you to Jesus and deepens your relationship with Him. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7. We started last week talking about this idea of preparing ourselves. Last week we talked about the idea of preparing our lives as a place of pleasure for God. I challenge you to look on your calendar at December 31st and write down who you wanted to be by the end of this year. Circle that and then start to prepare yourself from this moment so that you can become that person. Who do you want to be at the end of this year? What do you want to accomplish by the end of this year? What maturity level do you want to reach? How do you want your life to look? What what do you want to be different? What freedom do you want to exist in your life that doesn't exist in your life? Write that down on your calendar and say, okay, God, how do I get there? Prepare me. I want to prepare myself because that's who I want to be. We don't set enough goals in our life. And so I wanted to start this month, this year in 2022, establishing some goals. So last week we were... We talked about preparing ourselves to be a people in a place that brings God pleasure. And this week I want to talk about preparing ourselves to trust the voice of God as it leads us. Preparing to trust the voice of God as it leads us. We're going to talk about Noah this morning. And I'm not going to dive back into the Genesis account too much. It's a longer account. And I believe Hebrews 11.7 gives us what we need this morning uh, more than enough, really, because uh, I could preach this until about 3 o'clock this afternoon, but hopefully that's not going to happen. Hopefully you can be to 11.15 and we'll be okay. Amen? Somebody say it by faith. Amen. 11.15. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Y'all keep praising and worshiping and we might get it done. <laughs> but I want to talk about trust. Talk about trust. It's a story from 1854 that I had read in a book by Mark Batterson a while back. And he talked about a guy named Otis. This is not Otis Randy Griffith. Different Otis. This is a man named Elisha Otis. And more than likely, even if you don't know that name, you have probably ridden in one of Otis's cars. Otis is the guy whose name is stamped on elevator cars, Otis Elevators. They hold the lion's share of elevator business in the world to this day. And the interesting thing about Elisha Otis is that he did not invent the elevator. He invented the braking system that made elevator travel safe enough for people to actually want to get on those things. Before Elisha Otis developed his braking system, elevators were basically just traps. You got on these, a lot of times, open sort of structures with planks at the bottom. Sometimes they were on the outside of buildings, not on the inside, and they didn't have any real reliable braking system. So you might go up five, six stories, 50, 60 feet in the air, and things fall apart, and you fall down. People were injured. Some people even died because of this, and so they stopped riding elevators. The problem was, is that most of the buildings that we see in our larger cities would not be possible without elevators. Nobody wants to walk more than five flights of stairs. We have one flight of stairs in my house. I don't want to walk that. But because of the elevator, we have the skyscrapers that dot our the landscape of our larger cities. Well, Otis was struggling because people knew the stories of the elevator, but they did not believe that he had come up with a better way to make a safety system for that elevator. 
So, at something that I can't remember the name of, it was, uh, it was an exhibition. The Crystal Palace Exhibition in Manhattan. I preached my voice out while we were singing, and now I've got no voice. But God will make it. At the Crystal Palace Exhibition in Manhattan, which was kind of like the World's Fair of its day, in 1854, Elisha Otis created this sales pitch that changed the minds of the people who were there. So he got onto one of his elevators. It went up to about 30 or 40 feet. He looked down on the crowd and he said, I have developed a braking system for this elevator that you can finally trust. And they're like, yeah, right. We know. We've heard the story before. And so then he looked down at his assistant, somebody he had hired to work with him, and he said, cut the cable. And the people gasped. <gasps> what? You're going to die. You're 40 feet in the air. What are you doing? Cut the cable. He cut the cable. The mechanism locked. The elevator did not fall to the earth. Elisha Otis was safe. And suddenly, people began to applaud and cheer. He sold three of his units that very first day for $300 apiece. And elevator travel was changed forever. See, one of the things that we have to begin with, if we're going to talk about trust, is the idea that trust literally cannot exist unless there's danger. Trust is unnecessary in a world without friction, disappointment, uncertainty, and danger. Because if you don't have any of those things, then you don't need to trust anyone. Now, can I tell you, I believe in my heart, one of the reasons we love to be so self-sufficient as human beings is because we hate the idea of trust. One of the reasons we want everything in front of us and available to us is because we don't like to have to trust. But the story of Noah is a story of trust. Noah exists in a time period that the Bible says is one of the most brutal and wicked periods in all of human history. So much so that God couldn't find more than eight people that he wanted to save from a flood that he was going to bring. Don't romanticize your age as the worst age of all time. There's more than eight people in this room. Okay? I hope that you're all saved. But even if only half of us were, we're doing better than the days in which Noah lived. He lived in one of the most brutal and violent and self-centered and greedy eras in all of history. And it's in that environment, in that culture, that Noah had to trust God. It wasn't in a moment of great prosperity. It wasn't in a moment when everything was going right. It wasn't in a moment when everything was smooth and frictionless. It was literally in a world where everything seemed to be falling apart. That's where Noah's trust developed. But that's where trust always develops because that's where trust exists. That's how real life works itself out. I read one time somebody talking about having a heart attack and I have never had a heart attack and I'm thankful to God for that. Some of you have. And he said most every other pain that he had experienced up to that point was something he could isolate. Like if he smashed his finger with a hammer, which I have done several times because I don't have good eyesight and apparently I'm terrible at swinging a hammer. But I do it almost every time I do any kind of a job. And so I'm just planning on banging one of my fingers at some point. And so and my father-in-law who's working with me or my dad, they'll laugh at me and that's fine because I get over it. I haven't done any permanent damage yet. But you can look at it and think, man, that really hurts. I can isolate the pain and say, and hold it out from me and say, that hurts. But he said, 
when he had the heart attack, it was like he couldn't step outside of the pain because the pain had enveloped him. He was inside of the discomfort. He was inside of the struggle. He was inside of the uncertainty of what was going to happen because of what he was experiencing. And this is exactly how real life takes place. You don't get to step outside of the difficulties of your life and analyze things and try to make sense of all the uncertainty and all the doubt and all the struggle and formulate a plan. We are trapped inside of the difficulties of life oftentimes. Our response to uncertainty, our response to danger, our response to pain comes from the inside, not the outside. And it's from the inside that Noah had to respond. Noah didn't get miracled up to heaven so he could gaze upon the earth with God. Noah stood in the middle of one of the most brutal times in history and had to decide what he was going to do with God. So I want to tell you this. I'm not here to minimize your risk. And I'm not here to suggest that the consequences you're facing aren't real or serious. I'm just here to tell you that it is precisely in those moments when true trust is actually available to you. I want you to hear that. If your life is in a place of difficulty, then you are ripe for the trust of God to be activated in your life. If you're perfect, if everything's great, rejoice in God because it probably won't be forever. But I'm just here to tell you the reality of life is that most of us are walking through something. Most of us are in a place where we feel uncertainty and danger around us. And it's precisely in that place that you have available to you a trusting God that can change your life. You ever done a trust fall? Raise your hand. Trust falls? Yeah. A lot of people in the room. Good, good. So we had to do it at a company that I worked at years ago, and, and we've, we actually did it at the boys' camp out uh, last year during the summer. And uh, so you, essentially, if you don't know what it is, you stand up on a platform, and the platform is elevated, obviously, off the ground, and you're backwards. There are people behind you. Now, I've seen videos of people who blindfold themselves and fell the wrong direction, and that just is a terrible, terrible thing. But, but you stand, and, and what you're hoping is that the people behind you have locked arms together across an aisle, and when you fall, you're going to fall, and their arms are going to catch you. And so that's why it's called a trust fall, because if they don't catch you, then it's going to be painful. If they don't catch you, then things are going to go bad real quick. So you hold yourself, you close your eyes, and you fall backwards. I was tempted to bring some people up this morning and do a trust fall for you. But if it went wrong, then I couldn't finish the sermon. And I realized just how little I trust people. And as I was thinking and preparing and praying over this for the last week, I, I was reminded of that verse. So many of you know this verse. You can quote it with me. And, and it's your life verse for some of you. But Solomon, in the book of Proverbs, says, what does he say? He says, trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Can I tell you what he's talking about? He's talking about a trust fall. See, he says that the temptation for us is when we fall to try to catch ourselves with our own hands. But he says, hey, don't lean on your own understanding. When you're falling, when you're in a place of danger, when you're in a place of uncertainty, don't try to make your hands that are catching you because you can trust with your whole self in the hands that will catch you every time. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Lean not onto your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your path.
So God literally says, when you're falling, I am the hands that will catch you every time. You can put your trust in me. And this is the story of Noah. It's the story of Noah. So I'll say this, and then we'll transition. I've got three things that I want to tell you about Hebrews eleven seven about the life of Noah, three ways that Noah lived out his trust. But I'll tell you this, in the middle of sorrow, in the middle of uncertainty, in the middle of danger, in the middle of difficulty, in the middle of darkness, God can be trusted with your entire heart. He can be trusted with your desires. He can be trusted with your dreams. He can be trusted with your passions and your longings. He's never dropped anyone who chose to place all of their trust in him. God looks at us and he says, in the middle of a world where brokenness and uncertainty have made trust possible, you can put all of your trust in me. And for some of you, you just need to hear that. Because I think the consequences of life, and I'll, I'm, I'll ramble here and I'll get too far into this and I won't end at 11.15 like I promised. But the consequences of life can make us forgetful of the faithfulness of God. And so I think sometimes, maybe it's just my job to remind you in the moment that you're in when you can't remind yourself. This is why community is actually important because some people will be able to remind you when you can't think of it yourself. It's the reason you should have a group of people that you're walking with by faith. It's the reason that you should come to church. One of the reasons. The other is because I would miss you if you didn't show up. But nonetheless, that's selfish. But it's because people need to remind you when you can't remember yourself that God is still faithful, even in the lowest moments of your life, that when you feel like you're falling, if you choose to put all of your trust in Him, He, he has the hands that will catch you every single time. And some of you need to hear that again. Because some of you feel like you're falling. Some feel like there's no way that you're going to grab the sides of this mountain. You've tumbled off the edge of the cliff. And I'm telling you, you might have. But I also know the hands that will catch you. I know that Paul told Timothy, and I'll end with this, move on. Paul told Timothy that he is faithful even when we are faithless. <laughs> it is the most encouraging verse in the New Testament to me. That even when I run out of the ability to believe, he is still faithful to me. And so Noah lived out his trust in three ways. Let's look at the text. Verse 7. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen. Events as yet unseen. Noah chose to see what he had not seen. He chose to see what he had not seen. So the language of Hebrews is powerful here. He says that God warned him concerning events as yet unseen. It's interesting, I think, that Noah's story in Genesis is that the unseen thing was an unprecedented flood. And yet the writer of Hebrews does not say flood. The writer of Hebrews says events as yet unseen. Now even the Greek word for God warned him is translated God warned him, but that same word can also be translated God revealed to him. God showed him something. It doesn't necessarily have to come with the connotation of negativity like it was some kind of disaster. See, I believe that the writer of Hebrews is trying to pull us out a little bit and give us a broader principle. I believe the writer of Hebrews is saying, yes, there was a flood that God warned him about. But also, do you know what else was unseen for Noah? The fact that God was going to save him and his entire family through means that he had never known was possible. An ark was going to be built. 
the family of Noah, his sons and his wife and his son's wives were all going to be saved by God's miraculous hand. Can I just tell you, I think it matters that we at least give God as much credit for showing us how he's going to save us as much as we see how much the world's going to try to destroy us. Oh man, that's better. That's better than y'all just gave me credit for. Because God is looking at us and saying, do you still believe that I'm a savior or do you believe that there's just destruction? Do you only believe that there's bad news or do you also believe that there's good news? See, in the church, we have plenty of bad news. In the world, we got plenty of bad news. Every website you go on, for goodness sake, I made the mistake of looking at the news this morning when I got up. It was a terrible idea. Now they're renaming variants, smushing names together of sicknesses to scare us. I'm tired of this. Can't we just be sick anymore? I'm not saying I deny it. It's dangerous. It needs to be taken with caution. But let's stop creating names for things, okay? I don't need all that. You can tell me I've got COVID and the flu at the same time. Don't come up with a cute little nickname for it. I get nicknames for my kids. I don't need nicknames for my viruses. There's plenty of bad news in the world. And it's here, right? It's real. It affects us. It challenges us. It puts us in places of uncertainty. But that's not the only news. Maybe I've just come to tell you a story in this point. That the only news that you should be hearing is not bad news, but there's good news as well. Because in the middle of a world of darkness, in the middle of a world of uncertainty, in the middle of a world of pain and danger, we still have a Savior who took the ultimate punishment upon his own shoulders at a cross. He said, despite the darkness, I am still the light. We try to force the story of Noah to be about destruction when really the story of Noah is about life and salvation. God allowed him to see something he had not yet seen. He chose to see salvation when everyone else saw degradation. He chose to see protection when everyone else saw struggle. God showed him a vision of salvation, and Noah chose to believe that. The book of Peter, the writings of Peter, refer to Noah as a preacher of righteousness. Not a preacher of destruction, but a preacher of righteousness. I think we've given Noah this bad rap. We said he went around like a fiery preacher who told everybody they're going to hell. Really, I think Noah went around telling everybody that they could be saved. Hey, can I just tell you, church, if you get more enjoyment out of telling people they're going to hell than there's a savior, then you're on the wrong side of the equation. Stop telling people they're going to hell and start telling them Jesus loves them. If you're going to tell them about hell, tell them about heaven. If you're going to tell them about destruction, tell them about salvation. If you're going to tell them about sin, tell them about righteousness. If you're going to tell them about sickness and plague, tell them about healing and the stripes laid upon the back of our Lord once upon a time. Tell them the good news, not just the bad. See, the Apostle Paul says something else about seeing that has something to do with the way that I read this verse. In 1 Corinthians 2, verse 9 He says, as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor has ear heard, nor has entered into the imagination of man what God has prepared for those who love him. Paul says, if you want to talk about seeing what has not been seen, let's talk about what God has planned for his people. Let's talk about the joy and the peace and the blessing and the goodness that God has planned for his people. This is who we are. We are people who see what we have not yet seen because God has spoken grace into our lives that we did not deserve. If you're going to prepare your trust, if you're going to prepare yourself to trust God, then you're going to have to choose to see what has not yet been seen. 
Because if you believe that the entire world is just a fireball on its way to destruction, then you're seeing what everyone sees. See, I choose to see the, the beauty of the glory of what God is going to do because of verses like 1 Corinthians 2.9. I choose to see what God has planned for me. And in doing so, it gives me the ability to trust the voice of my Savior when He leads me, when He sends me, when He commands me. I'll talk about that in a minute. There's one more verse I want you to see, Ephesians 1.18. Paul prays for the church in Ephesians 1. He's gone through this long, the first 15 verses is one sentence, this long run-on sentence that only the Apostle Paul could get away with. But then he begins to pray for the church. And as a part of that prayer, in verse 18 in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul says, I'm praying that the eyes of your heart would be opened or enlightened, depending on your translation. And he says there's three things that I want you to be able to see. Now, that means that Paul believes that they aren't seeing these things. Do you hear that? He says, you are not seeing what you should be seeing, and so I'm praying that your heart would be illuminated so you can see what you need to see. The three things that he says are this. He says, I want you to see the hope to which you've been called. He says, I want you to see the riches of your glorious inheritance in the saints. Please, we, we subtract that last prepositional phrase from that sentence too often. We, we want to see the glorious, the riches of our glorious inheritance. Your inheritance is in here. Gosh, is somebody going to throw something at me? Your inheritance is in here. God gave you the saints to walk with. He gave you human beings that love Jesus to walk with so that you could have support, so that you could see the glory of God through the people who his radiance is bouncing off of as angled mirrors. God said, I gave you the church for your great benefit. This is part of your inheritance. Having a skinny 44-year-old preacher yelling at you every week is part of your inheritance. He says, the hope to which you've been called, the glorious inheritance in the saints, and the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward us who believe. Paul said, you're going to see everything else, and now I want you to see this, that you have hope, that you have an inheritance, and that you have access to power. How beautiful. And so I ask you, what are you preparing to see this year? See, I believe the more you put this in front of your eyes, the better your outlook's going to be. The more you put this in front of your eyes, you're going to be like everybody else. Fear will govern your life. Struggle will govern your life. And let me, can I just be honest? When you put this in front of your face, it doesn't mean that you don't deal with struggle. It doesn't mean you don't deal with uncertainty or danger. It just means you don't see things the same way because you're seeing things like God sees them. <laughs> the revelation of God through his word changes the way that we see life. So, if you're convinced that we're going to see the worst things in the world, you're going to have trouble. Don't assume the worst news when you serve the best God. There, there's your quote for the day. Don't assume the worst news when you serve the best God. Second, not only did Noah see what he had not seen, but he chose to do what he had not done. He saw what he had not seen because God revealed it to him, but then he chose to do what he had not yet done. So if you're going to see what you have not seen, then you ought to be ready to do something that you haven't done. I had, uh, so, so Noah was commanded by God to build an ark. This is not a pontoon. 
It's not a bass boat. It's not a party barge. It's an ark. He didn't go to Cabela's. He went to the woods. And he cut down a bunch of trees with his boys. And they did something they'd never done before. Let me tell you the remarkable amount of faith it takes to build a boat and then get on it and expect it to float. Some of y'all are crafty. You good with your hands? I'm not. If you gave me a boat, I could find a way to sink it. Much less if I built it with my own hands. But God commanded him, didn't he? He said, all right, you're going to use this kind of wood. You're going to use this for pitch. You're going to make it this size. It's going to be this wide. It's going to be this long. It's going to be this tall. This is how you're going to structure it. Here's your capacity. Here's your cargo. He gave Noah a blueprint. He said, this is your instruction. The Bible says that he commanded Noah to do it. And I think there's got to be a way, and, and you might get a little frustrated with me, but just hear me out before you get angry. I think we have to rethink how we engage the commands of God. See, in our culture, and don't tell me that you aren't influenced by your culture. We all are, okay? You were raised in this. I was raised in this. This is who we are. When we have a law put in front of us, we scrutinize it because legislators are the ones who came up with it. And so we look at it and think, I don't know if I'm going to follow that or not. Like, can I tell you something? I don't care what you think. I'm perfectly capable of driving my car at 90 miles an hour very safely. And those goofballs at the state house decide that 65 is where I need to keep it. I don't believe them. I scrutinize that law. I don't believe it at all. Even with a law like murder, where we could all probably agree that killing someone is unrighteous, sinful, against the law, should be wrong in a culture, right? But we've got 15,000 different ways of talking about killing somebody. First degree, second degree, third degree, premeditated, cold-blooded, manslaughter, accidental. And I mean, all of these things. We have all of these ways of talking about things because we're standing off to the side scrutinizing the laws that have been created. And I think when God commands us to do things, sometimes we bring that baggage into our relationship with God. So could I encourage you to stop thinking of the commands of God in terms of laws that legislators created? But, but here's, here's the image I want you to get. They're more like aromas created by bakers and chefs. Now some of you are going to think I'm soft peddling sin. Stop it. Don't judge me before you hear the rest of the point. I love you. But I believe God's commands are like aromas. I was kind of kidding. I came across aggressive. I'm sorry about that. I apologize to you. I had read this thing by a, a guy named Avery Gilbert. Avery Gilbert is a psychologist, but he holds one of the coolest job titles that I've ever heard. He is known as a fragrance scientist. I never knew that existed. And he says this. He said, food aroma is an invitation and it is a spur to action. Even before, I got an amen over there, even before the first bite, when you smell food coming from the kitchen, it triggers an elaborate sequence of psychological events. Your mouth begins to salivate, insulin releases from your pancreas, and the secretion of various digestive juices shoots into your uh, digestive tract. All without you asking it, right? You didn't ask that to happen. He says this, this is one of the most fascinating things I've ever read in my life. I have nothing to do with the Bible, but other than the Bible, this is beautiful. He says that the smell of bacon. Yeah. Some of y'all about to run an aisle. He says the smell of bacon 
even when it is so faint that your conscious mind cannot discern that it is the smell of bacon will cause someone's mouth to water. Long before they know it's bacon, your mouth says, I'm ready. See, I think if we really understood the commands of God, the instructions of God, the laws of God, as if it were food that he is providing for us for our nourishment and for our benefit and for our health, we wouldn't fight with him so much when he instructs our lives in certain directions. But we think God is delivering these laws to keep us from joy, to keep us from happiness, to keep us from enjoying the life that we have on this earth. I'm just here to tell you, God will never tell you to do anything that is not for your good. He loves you too much for that. If he says no, please hear me, a yes would be a bad idea. The commands of God, it's like fresh baked bread drifting out of the kitchen. You smell it and you think, I want that. See, when the church starts to embrace the laws and commands of God like that, suddenly we stop being people who are disgruntled and white-knuckling our way through our sanctification. I can't stand it when God tells me to do that. I hate to love that person. They hurt me 10 years ago, and I can't stand them. I don't want to drive the speed limit because I hate speed limits in general, and I just can't stand to do it all. I'm sick and tired of going to church. He's moved the service time from 11 to 10 o'clock. What's wrong with him? i got to get up an hour earlier to get my hair done. Like, when you start thinking about life in terms of what somebody has told you to do as something that's trying to negate your joy then you will push back against the commands of God and you will hate what he's instructed you to do. The thing is, he instructed Noah and he said, build it out of this wood with this pitch, this size, with this cargo, because I want to save your life. I gave you commands so I could save your life. I gave you the law so I could save your life. I gave the Holy Spirit to you so he could write my law on your heart so it could save your life. Stop assuming the commands of God are about destroying your happiness when they're actually about creating joy. Do what you have not yet done. Once you've seen what God has called you to, once you've seen what has not yet been seen, it's time to do what you have not yet done. For Noah, that looked like cutting down trees, hammering a bunch of stuff together, and creating a boat. For you, it might look like loving somebody that you didn't want to love. It might look like repentance from sin that you can't seem to walk away from. It might look like coming to an altar and surrendering your heart for the first time to Jesus. Do what you have not yet done. If you're going to see it, then you need to be willing to do it. Trust is deeply connected to action. If I stand on the platform in the trust fall and I never tip backwards, then I haven't trusted anyone. Just because the hands are back there, just because I'm in position, just because there's danger, I haven't trusted anyone until I move. There are too many of us who have caught a vision of what God has for us. Then God delivers his instruction on how we move toward that vision, but we have not been incited to action because we prefer it to do it a different way. Hmm. I'm going to meddle just for a few minutes if you can give me this. The church is not in any lack of the provision of God. What we have is a problem with the process that he's given us. Because God rarely ever gives us fruit. He gives us seeds. 
God will plant seeds in our life and say, I want you to till the soil. I want you to weed it. I want you to water it. I want you to take care of it so you can see the fruit of his provision. But what we want is the fruit immediately instead of the work. We don't want to do what we've never done. We just want to have what we've never had. This is really what holiness looks like. It has nothing to do with smoking and drinking. It has everything to do with trusting the commands of God. It had nothing to do with cutting your hair or wearing dresses that had a train behind you or not wearing a wedding ring. It had everything to do with saying, God, if you've instructed me to do it, then I'm going to do it because I believe you have my best interest at heart. I'm going to do what I have not been doing because I want to fully see what you've promised to show me. Hmm. So, James 1, 22 through 25 is, is another reference if you want to write that down. Most of you will know that verse in 22, in verse 22, where he says that you're not supposed to be hearers of the word only, right? But doers. Doers, not just hearers. So let me walk through some of this with you. Third point short, so you'll be fine. I hope anyway. If you need to leave, it's okay. I love you. I think sometimes we keep praying over and over again for God to bless us bless our lives and then we get frustrated because it doesn't seem like he's doing it but sometimes it's maybe it's not that he's not answering our prayers maybe it's that he's handing us hammers and nails and telling us to build something that he's given us the provision and the blueprints for I think we want our families to be stronger we want our kids to turn around their lives we want our marriages to be loving instead of frustrating so God gives us the opportunities to turn off the television or be less concerned with our yard, or to spend more time with our kids. Maybe we have the opportunity to leave work early and take flowers to our wife. Maybe you have the opportunity to do something unexpected for your husband that will create an atmosphere of joy, but then we don't do it. And so we come back and we bang our heads against the altar wondering why God failed us. Maybe we have a desire to be spiritually mature. To know what it looks like to be a disciple of Jesus instead of just a fan of Jesus. And there's a legitimate hunger in our heart for more. So we say a prayer on a Sunday morning. We come down to an altar. We kneel. We say, God, I want you to have my whole heart. And I want revival in my life. And then we wonder two weeks later why nothing has happened. Why there's no spark. Why there's no passion. Why there's no verb. And yet our Bible is dusty and we haven't even opened it. We haven't spent much more time in prayer than that one Sunday morning. And we look at God and say, why aren't you showing up? He gives us a vision to see what we have not seen, but then we refuse to do what we have not done. And it's not about whether he's giving us the provision. He's always a provider. It's whether we're going to trust him with the process. We pray for peace. We pray for an end to anxiety. We pray for the weight of stress to be lightened, but then we don't change what we're putting into our brains through our eyes and ears. Some of you are walking in fear and you keep turning on the news. Why? Why would you keep drinking poison and then complaining about being sick? That's not too much. That's exactly what I needed to say. We keep feeding ourselves depression and then wonder why we're depressed. We get frustrated with God and scream, why won't you heal me? And he lovingly tells us, I am healing you, but you refuse to take the healing that I'm giving you. Can I just tell you, I love him enough to not let us blame him anymore for things that he's not doing wrong. And I'm not here to be his defender. I just want to explain to you what I believe we do far more often than we think we do. The question that looms so large over our life 
questions. Are we preparing ourselves for what God has prepared for us? You've heard the other statement, right? God is preparing you for what he has prepared for you. We hear that one all the time. That one gets amens and hand claps and people run the aisle and dance. What we don't like as much is, are you preparing yourself for what he has prepared for you? Are you changing your life? Are you obeying his word? Are you following his commands? I'm just here to tell you, like you can push back and you can say, no, nah, that's not the way I'm going to do it. That's fine. That's up to you, obviously. But can I just tell you what I found in my own life is the more I bend my heart to his will, the more joy I have, the more peace I have, even in the middle of circumstances, even in the middle of destruction, even in the middle of decay, even when the world comes against me, even when pain is in, in, in my realm, even when danger shows up, even when I don't know if anybody's going to catch me when I fall off that platform, I know that he will catch me. And when I bend my life to his will, I live in a place of trust that I cannot know if I don't bend my life to his will. Third, finally, if you're going to see what you have not yet seen and you're going to do what you have not yet done, then you need to choose to believe God's voice over every other voice. Verse 7, one more time. By faith, Noah being warned by God. There's got to be a part of us that creates what I'm going to call a hierarchy of trust. Hierarchy is just a word that simply means you create sort of a pecking order. You create a ladder so that the voice at the top step always has the ability to veto every other voice on the steps below. It's one of the things that we, that they vote on to give the president, right? Veto power. That means that no matter what comes through in legislation, when it first comes to his desk, if he has veto power, he can say, nope, and he signs it and sends it back. Line item veto is where he gets to choose certain aspects of bills that are presented to him and then say, I like all this, but I'm going to scratch these two lines. Nope. In our lives, there has to be a hierarchy of trust where we say the voice of God is always the highest authority in our life. I'll listen to him when I won't listen to anybody else. Or once I've heard, this is what happens more often, once I've heard all of the voices from all over the place and they've all brought their advice to me. You, you probably don't know this, but we live in a world where a lot of people have a lot of advice to give you. <laughs> and so after all of those voices have sung that symphony of advice and direction, and, and here's what you need to do with your life, and here's how you need to do things with your relationships, and you need to go ahead and put a ring on that finger, and, and you need to make sure that you buy a house early, and you need to you need to go back to school, you need to major in this because this is where the money is. Once you've heard all of those other voices, there has to be one voice that has the authority in your life to say no to those things and yes to those things and to speak vision into your life that creates instruction and action. For Noah, the revelation of God led to the instruction of God and then incited the action of this man who loved God. Because God's voice was more powerful. Can I, this was not easy. No, Noah didn't build a boat for fun. In fact, there's a good chance that people looked at him like he was a huge fool. Because he did what God told him to do. Why was he a fool? Hear me now. Once it started raining, he didn't look like a fool. Why was he a fool? Because God showed him something before anybody else had seen it. He saw 
what he had not seen, so he chose to do what he had not done because over his life was the banner of the voice of God who knows all things and who can give all instruction for all joy and all salvation. There's this beautiful, one of, the, one of my favorite texts in the New Testament. Donna, so if you would, please, I'm, I'm here. Here at the end. One of those powerful statements in all the scripture. Is, are, are the words, if it's you. Some of you will remember that story immediately from Matthew chapter 14. If it's you. The disciples were sent out on a boat after Jesus had taught and fed the crowds. And Jesus said, I'm going to spend some time in prayer alone. I'll see you on the other side. The disciples, apparently hungry, tired, didn't even think to ask, well, how are you going to get there? We're taking a boat. But they went out left Jesus behind. So a storm comes up. The Bible says wind and waves begin to beat the boat. And they were struggling to make progress in the middle of the night to get to the other side of the lake. And so when they were starting to feel despair because they were stuck, In my mind, anyway, I see the lightning is flashing because of the storm that is around them. And the lightning, the bursts of light in the sky, begins to outline a figure that seems to be walking toward them. Would you stand with me? I'm just, I promise I'm about done. If you give me five minutes here, that'll be five minutes over. God knows y'all prayed hard. They see a figure and they're scared now. Not only are they tired, worn out, don't think they're going to make it, but now they're scared because they say it's a ghost. It's an apparition. It's a spirit. And Jesus speaks. He says, take heart, for it is I. Do not be afraid. And have you ever said something and you thought somebody else probably said it because you knew you wouldn't say those words? You ever had something just jump out of your mouth and you think, whoa, that was not me. He lashed out some of you in anger, some of you feeling guilty and conviction right now. Please put that to the side. We'll pray over it in a second, okay? Peter squeaks out as he's looking over the side of that boat. He hears Jesus' voice. He says, if it's you, command me to come out onto the water and walk to you. He says, if it's you. (laughs) If it's the voice of God, it's different. Hmm. If it's the voice of God calling you to it, then it's different. If it's you, say that out loud. Say, if it's you, if it's him, because if it was Jesus, then listen to me, gravity and physics and weight distribution, none of that matter. Because if it's him telling me to come, then I will make it because his voice has supreme authority in my life. He is the same voice that called the wind and the waves to shut down a few months ago when we were on a boat in a storm again. His voice has power over nature. His voice has power over sickness. His voice has power over demons. His voice has authority in the situations and circumstances we thought we had failed and fallen apart if it's him. If it's you, then I can come to you. If it's really you calling me, if it's really you asking me, if it's really you instructing me, if it's really you, then I know that the impossible thing that's in front of me becomes very possible because your voice changes everything. Some of y'all need to hear that. You will not trust God until you know his voice. 
You cannot prepare your trust. You cannot prepare yourself to see what you have not seen and do what you have not done until you choose to learn what his voice sounds like and you put that at the top of the ladder in your hierarchy of trust and say, God, if you call me to it, it doesn't matter how crazy it sounds, I believe that it can be done. Oh God, the church is so safe. (laughs) We don't do outlandish things. We don't say outlandish things. We sneak back behind bushes and say, I know I trust God. He's coming back for me someday. But all the problems in the world I'm going to avoid. We're like a kid getting bullied by the world. Except your older brother showed up. and said, don't bully my kid and my kid brother anymore or sister, depending on where you're at. When his voice says, if it's you, when his voice says, come to me. Suddenly water doesn't matter and storms don't matter. And it's only when he takes his eyes off of the Savior that things start to go wrong. So I encourage you, and and we're going to have just a few moments of prayer. Preparing your trust is about conditioning your heart. And you prepare by training the ears of your heart to know his voice, by being in the scriptures, by returning to your place of prayer, and by being a deeply connected part of the community of faith. There are people in this room who have story after story after story of how God spoke to them, how God called them, how God sent them in directions that you never dreamed they could have gone, how God showed up in provision for them in ways that would blow our ever-loving minds. And we don't spend time with the saints. We spend time with ourselves, and we exist in an echo chamber. We don't hear those stories. Those stories teach us how to hear the voice of God, along with reading the text and hearing his voice through the scriptures, along with sitting in prayer. Can I tell you, if it's silent in prayer, keep praying. Stay there. Because he's not actually silent, you're just learning how to hear. And when you hear his voice, there will be no challenge to trust his voice. Because this is the same voice that called light out of nothing and darkness and moon, sun and stars. This is the voice that told David you can go into the valley and fight a man who's twice your size. This is the voice that told Moses to go back into the Pharaoh's palace even though there was certain death there. This is the voice whose the wind of his voice, of his mouth, pushed the sea and split it apart so Israel could walk across. This is the voice that whispered in Elijah's ear and said, it's not going to rain for three and a half years and you can go tell the king. This is the voice of God that shows up in your life and in my life. This is the voice of God that cried out from the cross, it is finished. This is the voice of God who will one day say out loud in our our earshot, I am the one who is making all things new and I always have been making all things new. It's this voice that you need to learn to hear because it will change the way that you see life. You will not see things like you've seen them. You will see what you have not seen. And you will not do things the same way that you've been doing them. You will do things that you have not done because his voice changes everything. It builds trust and it allows you to be directed in the places that you need to go this year, not just the places you would have gone. Would you bow your heads close your eyes, please? Let's spend a few minutes in prayer. Not that late. Because if you're going to prepare yourself to be a a people in a place that brings God pleasure, then you're going to have to prepare yourself to trust the voice of God as it leads you. So I want to invite you down to the altar again this week. We're going to do this for four weeks. Two weeks after the day. Because some of you need to make a commitment to God that you're going to learn how to hear his voice. 
And some of you need to say, I've heard your voice and I just haven't done what you instructed me to do. And today is the day that changes.